This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border: Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. In the wake of the Galwan Valley clashes and the ongoing military standoff between India and China on the line of control, the bilateral focus today is on diffusing the current conflict. While focused on the global implications of China's rise, we often miss out on the nuances and interesting details of life and politics within China. What is the nature of the Chinese domestic politics and the society under the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership of all-powerful Xi Jinping. How does China see its place in the world, and what are its grand strategic ambitions on the world stage? To understand China, its domestic politics, its economic growth, and the relations with India, I have with me Mr. Anand Krishnan. Anand is the author of a recently published book. India's China challenge a journey through China's rise and what it means for India as the China correspondent for the Hindu and the India today Mr Krishnan lived in China for almost a decade he has also been a visiting fellow at the Hong Kong University welcome to the national security conversation and uh, congratulations on this fantastic book um India's China challenge a journey through China's rise and what it means for India. Welcome to the National Security Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Anand, Anand, let me begin with a question um, about what happens, what is happening within China. You know, sitting here in India and also around the world, we think of China as an authoritarian regime where people do not enjoy any democratic rights or political freedoms. You've lived in China for a decade. Uh, what is life like uh, under the Communist Party's rule in China? Uh, what do the people of China think of the think of the party role, party's rule and their uh, and and the role of the Chinese Communist Party in their lives? That's a great question, and uh, I think I would need an hour to answer that, but but I won't take that much time because I think the the short answer would be depends who you ask. I don't think there's a, a clear answer. Uh, in some ways, one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was to try and uh, introduce a little bit of the complexity of China. Uh, mm-hmm. I think sometimes in India we have a sense that uh, it's a country where everybody thinks in the same way. There isn't a diversity of opinion. Um, but actually, uh, as I mentioned in the book, in some ways. once you get to know people and they then they're comfortable enough with you to confide in you uh, amongst my friend circle in beijing i would encounter as much diversity of views as i would with my friend circle in india or my friend circle in the us where i studied and lived then if obviously because of the nature of the one party state people might not be able to publish those views or express those views because the party still controls uh traditional media censors uh, social media you don't have those avenues of expression but it doesn't mean those views don't exist which is the, the point that i wanted to make in the book now, the other interesting thing with uh, china is that i think that you know having these simple labels of a country is authoritarian and another country is democratic doesn't really tell you 
very much about the day-to-day lives of people and their experiences navigating lives in that mm-hmm. country. It doesn't tell you much about inst- how the institutions function. Uh, so in the book, I kind of structured it where the first part I look at politics, uh, the second part I look at the economy. And if you read those first two parts of the book, which are not really, don't involve India that much, it's more about China's internal situation, you come away with very different things. And that was my intention. The first part of politics looks at the legacy of Mao Zedong, uh, the fact that this Marxist-Leninist state still very much exists in terms of its control over the big institutions, its control, the party control over the military, which is unique in being a party-controlled military and not a military that responds to the state, uh, a state that controls the press, uh, the fact that you do have very limited scope for free political expression. But contrasting that is this remarkable economic story. Mm-hmm. And the fact that in one generation, it's it's so difficult to explain, but in one generation, the, the change that people have gone through, and that's very visceral, that people are very aware of the fact that their parents' generation grew up in poverty, and now they are citizens of the world's second largest economy, and which explains why there's this huge sense of nationalism as well. So it is complicated, Happy Mon. I mean, if you ask somebody in Beijing, born in the 80s and 90s, you'd be surprised at how nationalist they are. Something, I think it's a global trend. There's pride in their country. Uh, even if the Communist Party is somewhat smart in making sure people conflate the party with the country. So a critic of the party is also by default a critic of the country. But then again, again, Happy Mon, that's not unique to China, is it? So, mm-hmm. uh, but, I, but I think that so I would say it's complicated. You ask a, a young Tibetan or a young Uyghur in Xinjiang, they would have a different answer. So the point that I kind of want to make in this book is difficult to say one answer, what a Chinese person thinks of their country. Uh, right. and I would embrace people to try and uh, look beyond our, our kind of stereotypes of China and, and, and try and appreciate that there is a, a divergence of views there as well. And it doesn't often come out. So are, are you then um, making the argument that in, in some ways the main, mainstream view in China is that the trade-off between uh, political freedoms and economic prosperity is something that they are not very unhappy uh, about? Yeah, is that, is that broad, yeah, I would say broadly speaking, um, I would say that the Communist Party for various reasons would still enjoy a fairly high degree of legitimacy, uh, in part because of economic growth that it's delivered. Uh, In the book, I make the case why there's a realization among the party leadership, especially post Xi Jinping, that economic growth forever can't be the source of the legitimacy, which is why they're turning to nationalism uh, and they're turning to other uh, forms of legitimacy because they Mm -hmm. know that compact has a shelf life. It worked for the last 20, 30 years post Tiananmen, but it's increasingly difficult to do that. uh, And they need different new ideological tethers. Um, So that's one point that I make in the book. But also, we should also note that the legitimacy is aided by other things. For instance, this remarkable propaganda apparatus that they have that conveys the message day in, day out, that prosperity in China is because of the party leadership, not necessarily only because of the people and everything that they've sacrificed and done, but they day in, day out make the message that without the party, there wouldn't be economic growth in China. They day in, day out make the contrast with other countries, including India, and increasingly the US, and they try and make the contrast with the fact that democracies are chaotic while China isn't as chaotic. So there is also that side of it happening. It is, uh, I still don't buy the view that people are brainwashed and buy everything uncritically. Obviously Mm -hmm. the propaganda works only because it is situated against their own visceral experiences of living in China over the last 20, 30 years. And if the people hadn't seen their livelihoods improve over the last 20, 30 years, the propaganda simply wouldn't be that effective. 
Right. You know, Anand, it is, it is almost impossible to understand contemporary China without understanding Xi Jinping, um, you know, the, the undisputed leader in China. So what distinguishes, in your opinion, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping from uh, previous Chinese leaders and how is he perceived by the people of China and um, CCP? I mean, are there, are there differences of opinion within the CCP? You do uh, discuss at length in the book about his upbringing, his early years, um, when he was sent to the labor camp, etc. So, um, and, and you do argue that she has established himself uh, in the party lexicon as the third great leader after Mao and then. So if you could sort of try and tell us about uh, the Xi Jinping phenomenon in China today, as it were. No, for sure. I think Xi Jinping is a kind of, you could say, the central character in this book. Uh, I do have a chapter on his rise, tracing out from his childhood, uh, the fact that his father uh, fell out with Mao Zedong, uh, his family was disgraced, and then he had to, he had a long way back, and he, and I think it is a testament to the fact that he survived the system, so he's not someone you should underestimate. Um, but I think that it's quite uh, interesting that he's changed the way the party state functions in a fundamental way that his two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, did not. Uh, collective leadership, I think, is now more or less a thing of the past. We don't know if China will return to that, but for all intents and purposes, there is no collective leadership at the moment. And uh, there, I don't think everybody in China, again, is, would be on the same page and thinking it's a good thing, because uh, when he took over in 2012, there was a sense among some people in the party that there was too much of policy paralysis and stasis under Hu Jintao. They wanted strong leadership. But as uh, one historian in Beijing that I interviewed, Zhang Lifan, says perhaps people got more than they bargained for. They wanted a strong leader, but they didn't really expect someone who was just going to come and completely tear up uh, the, the, um, the rules and conventions that were in place for so long. Uh, and I kind of explained how he did it uh, through his, uh, through primarily two campaigns. One is the anti-corruption campaign. And mm -hmm. The second is ideological campaigns to kind of ensure there's more party discipline, which is something that Xi Jinping has been speaking about a lot. I think that I would say... There are some people within the system who think that he's good for China. Uh, I'd say that there is a rising sense of nationalism among, among many young Chinese who feel that a strong leader suits their country's interests. I would say among, say, the private sector, among entrepreneurs, uh, there is a lot of uh, disaffection with some of his policies. We've seen recent moves against private Chinese companies that have made the news. Um, I left China in August 2018. And at the time that I left, I think there was some criticism among people that I knew who were working in the business sector or private companies that they felt that the space that they had was shrinking. Um, I think that among urban liberal intellectuals, uh, there was some amount of discomfort uh, at the trend. They felt that China was moving backwards because these were people who were campaigning for political liberalization, not that they expected a multi-party democracy, but within the one-party state, they were campaigning for uh, moderate freedoms of the press, uh, more independence in the judiciary, these things that people were campaigning up until 2012, all of that has stopped after Xi Jinping came to power. So among liberal intellectuals, obviously, they aren't unhappy with the direction. But I make the point in the book that I think that less of a concern, I don't think criticisms of liberal intellectuals is what would keep Xi Jinping up at night. I think he is more vulnerable to criticisms from the other side of the spectrum, which is the criticism that he's not strong enough, that he's not nationalist enough. So I think the, there is incentives for him to take a harder line as I'd say that that's the kind of criticism that would make him more vulnerable than something from what gets the news in the Western press, which is 
things that you get from uh, liberal intellectuals, some of whom who've left China and had to go to the US. I don't think he'd be too bothered uh, by that. That is interesting. So um, you, are, you are making a very counterintuitive argument that uh, Xi Jinping is perhaps not uh, seen as strong as it, as it should be uh, within China, and that could uh, be a problem for him. So he may actually try and become more and more um, strong in the days to come. Have I got that right? I think we've seen that actually. I don't think it's something new. I think we've seen that in the way he's governed over the last few years, the way they've wanted to stand up to the US, the way they've handled territorial maritime disputes, uh, the way they've even handled internal critics. Uh, in the book I mentioned in the last chapter, post-COVID-19, uh, how people have been critical of the party, uh, such as a, a real estate tycoon, Renji Chiang, who would have been an untouchable in the sense that he comes from party uh, blood. Uh, he was he was somebody that was very close to the party leadership, but because he wrote an essay criticizing Xi Jinping's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, he was uh, sentenced to 18 years in prison just for this essay, even though it was framed as corruption charges, uh, which really nobody really believed because the question is, why didn't they try him earlier? So I think they've made very clear that they wouldn't uh, tolerate uh, this kind of criticism. But the other thing, Harimon, I should mention uh, to your previous question on how people look at Xi, I should mention that post-COVID-19, in a way, he's actually come out stronger. Uh, I, I don't think people outside of China have really perceived that as much. Uh, people were uh, focusing on the fact that there was a lot of criticism of how the central government was handling COVID-19 uh, and the outbreak in Wuhan, the delayed response by the local government in Wuhan. But at the end of 2020, looking at how other countries handled it, looking at the fact that China broadly emerged from the pandemic by the summer, looking at the fact that the only major economy to grow, I think a case could be made that he's stronger at the end of 2020 than he was at the start of it, which I think should make us be a little aware of the resilience of the leadership. I think the coronavirus was a one in a hundred year challenge for the party leadership, a difficult, extraordinarily difficult challenge, one that people would think would be that kind of black swan event that perhaps would pose serious questions of the leadership in China. But at the end of this year, uh, I think a case could be made that she's sitting in a stronger position than he was at the start of it. That's, that's interesting. Um, one more question, Anand, about uh, Xi Jinping, uh, and that is how has he managed to change China? Um, I, I mean, I'm, let's, let's not talk about how he has changed the Chinese Communist Party, but China in general. And what are the sources of his legitimacy as to well? Well, I think it's a great question. And I think that uh, I would give you a very Chinese answer by saying that it's too soon to tell, right? <laughs> right as we are in the middle of this process that's unfolding. Uh, and I've been away from there, from China for two years as well. So sometimes when you're an observer from outside, you look at things differently than when you're living there. Um, but I think when I left, I had seen uh, the one thing that I really took away from my 10 years in China was I kept looking back on 2012, 2013 as this inflection point. Um, for me, I felt like there were two different experiences of China pre Xi Jinping and post Xi Jinping. Uh, I think the China that I went to uh, first in 2008, and then I moved there to report in 2009 for the Hindu uh, was so different from the China that I left. Uh, the Olympics had just taken place in Beijing in 2008. It really felt open to me and I was quite shocked at how open it was in terms of the people that I could meet, uh, in terms of the interviews that I did which you can read about in the book, people who are really critical of the government, critical of the leadership, the fact that uh, things were more open for foreign journalists and domestic journalists than they had ever been. Uh, people could travel freely. Uh, for the first time after 2008, foreign journalists could travel except for Tibet to any other province without getting permissions. 
Um, so for me, it was really a time of openness. Uh, there was a movement towards constitutionalism. Uh, there was a movement by lawyers for uh, you know judicial reforms. All these things that were happening on property rights. Uh, but then I think all of this kind of came to a screeching halt uh, post 2012, 2013. I think things have changed uh, beyond the Communist Party, as you say. Uh, for instance, universities, a place, uh, campuses where I spent quite a lot of time speaking to students and teachers, uh, universities, all this limited space that you had for debating uh, policies, some amount of freedom that you had, I think all of that has shrunk. I think now it's come to a situation where everyone has to speak from the same page, sing from the same hymn sheet. And I think there has been a regression of those kind of uh, moderate spaces of freedom that, that I exp experienced in China when I first moved there. I think the China that I left was really, really different in that sense of going back a few years, mm -hmm. um, especially of people that I interacted a lot, whether it was Chinese journalists, Chinese academics. I really could feel that in that day to day as well. Let's move attention to uh, the Chinese economic miracle, as it were. You know, the, what, what surprises a lot of people who um, look at China today is that how did really China go from having 90% of its people living under the poverty line in 1981 to witnessing a manufacturing miracle, as it were, having an astonishing growth in megacities, making giant strides as a technological giant, which is slated to become the world's biggest, largest economy. How did this happen? Obviously, she didn't do it. He's clearly reaping the uh, benefits of it in many ways. But how, how did this happen? Tell us, take us to this, this miraculous story, as it were. No, I do. Uh, in the book, I kind of split the Chinese uh, economic miracle into three different uh, mm. phases, uh, which I try and flesh out through my reporting, through uh, whether it's through the factory towns or to the countryside. Uh, so I think that in the book, I make the point that one thing that we kind of make, a, it's a common mistake that especially observers in India make is we kind of only focus on the China growth story starting with the 90s and 2000s. So in our, uh, I think in our mind space, we assume China's economic success with the special economic zones, with the infrastructure, with the highways, the skyscrapers and what have you. Uh, but I think that sometimes we forget about the fact that a lot of this actually began in rural China. Uh, a lot of the reforms in the 80s, uh, everything began in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, I quote economists who I think make a very compelling case that without the changes in rural China, the reforms in rural China, nothing that followed in urban China could have happened. And a lot of it is uh, began with investments not in infrastructure and hard capital, but in social capital in in education and health. Everyone that I spoke to made the point that the most transformative things that China did right in the 80s was in transforming the way people were being educated, in transforming uh, health services delivery in rural areas. And I bring that out by traveling uh, through the countryside in China. And I think that first half of the China economic miracle is largely absent from my imagination. And if, if that is absent from your imagination, you come away with the wrong lessons. Um, I think that I, I do interview a couple of Indian economists as well, and what we can learn from China's manufacturing success. Uh, and they make the point that it isn't about only making labor fireable. It isn't only about uh, building nice highways and ports. Ultimately, even foreign enterprises won't come and invest un unless you have a trained workforce, or unless you have an educated workforce, un unless you have a skilled workforce, which is something that India is obviously struggling with. And we've discovered in our difficulties in attracting uh, FDI, for example, something that comes up so often is uh, the workforce. Um, I, I have this quote 
that I read, which I thought was so interesting from Tim Cook of Apple, uh, who said in a speech that perhaps the most common misconception about China's success was the fact that labor was cheap. That was true in the 1990s. Uh, when you have this huge mass of people from the countryside coming to the factory towns searching for work. But what I discovered when I was traveling through the factory towns post-2011, 2012, is that the bargaining power of workers had shifted so much. It wasn't the case that the factories were calling the shots as in 10 years ago. It was now the case where wages were, were, were going up 20-25% every year. Uh, if you were unhappy with the job, you could move down the road and go somewhere else. And the agency of workers had really changed, which is why you had workers' protests and strikes uh, when I first moved there throughout the summer of 2010 and 2011. But uh, Tim Cook made this really interesting point that he said that it wasn't the cheapness of labor, but the fact that it, there was skilled labor was why Apple had so much of its supply chain in China, which I think should give us pause for thought when you think about relocating supply chains is something we are speaking about now. Factories have moved out of China and moved to Bangladesh and moved to Southeast Asia, but those are kind of on the lower end of the manufacturing food chain. The higher end ones still haven't moved out. And I think it will be difficult for those companies to move out because of this fact of having this mass of, uh, of skilled labor in China, which is something that I don't think we appreciate that often. That's a, you know, you mentioned this um, in, um, in the book and also in your, in your uh, previous answer. Why is it that India has not been able to sort of replicate China's success story in many ways? What are, what are some of the crucial components that fuel the China's economic growth that India so sorely lacks? I think that, um, as I mentioned in the book, it was a combination of factors. Uh, it was policies they got right in the 80s in terms of the rural reforms, uh, ending this commune system, uh, freeing up the workforce uh, in the countryside, educating people, uh, in rural areas and in urban areas, investing so much more than we do uh, on schools uh, and in healthcare delivery, no comparison. I think those are big changes. But also I mentioned the fact that why it's going to be so difficult for other countries to uh, replicate China is they had two things in their favor, uh, the luck of timing and the luck of geography. Uh, the luck of geography in the sense that you had all these East Asian economies that were taking off around the same time. Uh, the lack of geography in terms of having Hong Kong uh, as this very strange, unique experiment that was a part of China, but had its own uh, financial policies. It was much more open than the rest of China. It was a great avenue of, of, of bringing in capital and bringing in uh, educated people from abroad. So uh, I had one I interview one economist, uh, a really well-known Chinese economist who told me that when people ask him why India wasn't able to take off to the same scale of China, he always says it's Hong Kong. The fact that India doesn't have mm. a Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, but I think beyond that, it's also lack of timing. I think it was right at the right moment of globalization. Right now, if you're thinking of uh, a make in India kind of idea of manufacturing for the world, who's going to buy the stuff that you want to export when every country is turning inward? So they had the lack of timing, the lack of geography. So it's, I think it's very difficult for countries to replicate what they exactly did. At the same time, I think there are some lessons we should learn, especially when it comes to how they train their workforce and, and, and the investments in social capital. I think that's a, that's a universal lesson. Another question about, about economy. Um, India and China have been trading uh, for a very long time, of course. And uh, um, why is it that you do not have long-term stakeholders um, in the Indian market as far as Chinese enterprises are concerned? Um, you, you do say that, uh, um, you know, uh, between India and China in the period from 2000 to 2014, 
there was not much creation of incentives for Chinese enterprises to emerge as long-term stakeholders in the Indian market. Um, has things uh, have things changed after 2014? And why is this? Why, why did this happen? That the Chinese were probably not interested in becoming stakeholders in the Indian market as well. I think a part of it, Happy was our own policy in the sense that. I think Indian companies were happy to buy import equipment, cheap equipment from Chinese companies, whether it's power equipment or telecom equipment, uh, without really, uh, because the price difference was so significant compared to what they would get elsewhere. It didn't really matter mm -hmm. that they didn't have servicing of equipment. The Chinese companies didn't have a presence in India. Indian companies were happy to just import the equipment and use it. Uh, and so yeah. it was a very transactional kind of relationship, I think for the first decade uh, from 20, 2000 onwards. And perhaps, um, I know this is hindsight, but uh, I, I mean, if, if we kind of did something, uh, what the Chinese did, which was that if a foreign company wanted a stake of this big Indian market, it comes with strings attached, they have to be present there, they have to invest there. That's something we didn't do because I think our companies, our private sector was, uh, was more than happy to, to make money off of the cheap equipment that they were getting from China. Um, so I think that policy was led by, by what the private sector wanted. Um, but I think there were signs of this changing post 2014 because of what was happening on the tech side. Uh, I think this transactional relationship had changed a bit because you had Chinese companies that were investing in Indian companies. Um, and the Modi government post 2014 was encouraging this initially. So you had companies like Alibaba and Tencent come in a big way, acquire huge portfolios in India. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you know, most Indian e-commerce companies big Indian e-commerce companies have Chinese uh, shareholders. Uh, whether that if you look at any big company from Zomato or PTM mm -hmm. or what have you, they all have Chinese shareholders. Uh, and, that and the money from China did help them scale up. Uh, so I think it was looked at a positive by both sides, but that process I think has come to a screeching halt in the year 2020 for multiple reasons. Um, I think the government has done a complete 180 degree shift in how it looks at investment from China, from what I can see. I think they were quite bullish about wanting investment from China uh, through 2019, 2020. I think there has been a change in Delhi starting with early 2020. I'm not entirely sure why. This predated the border crisis in April 2020. There was an amendment of FDI rules that no longer made it possible for Chinese companies to automatically invest in India. Every Chinese investment requires government approval now. Um, I think there was a big signal to send to Chinese companies. From what I've read, there are more than 200 proposals right now waiting clearance. And I think the message is very clear to China Inc. right now that the investment is no longer welcome in India. And it's interesting that it predated the border crisis, this uh, change. Uh, and it was the reasoning was that India was afraid of hostile takeovers because of the coronavirus uh, and the problems that Indian companies might face. So that was a, that was a reasoning. Yeah. But I think it will have repercussions in the sense that this kind of linkages that were being built through investment has now stopped. I think the boundary crisis has, has perhaps been the, caused even further damage uh, than the, the initial FDI amendment, because now I think there's no appetite in India to have those kind of relationships with Chinese companies. Uh, and, and I'm sure that the Alibaba's intentions themselves aren't happy at all with the, with the developments on the line of actual control and how this whole crisis began in May, which frankly, we still don't know how this crisis began uh, very clearly. But I think the Chinese companies have been a big loser from this border crisis because they looked at India as perhaps one of the biggest overseas markets, bar none. 
because in the US and in the West, they came under scrutiny. But looking at Asia, they knew that India was the only market with, with a comparable size of China. And many of these com- companies mm-hmm. were reaching a kind of saturation within China. So the Tencent and Alibaba's were investing a lot in cultivating the Indian market. The Tencent, Alibaba's, the Xiaomi's. But I think now, I think they would be deeply concerned if they lose this market that they've invested quite a lot of money and time in. Right, you know, you you do you mentioned uh, Tencent and Alibaba. Um, you know the the amount of investments that these Chinese companies have been making, but there is also um, a concern in India. In fact, not just in India, world over, um, about the national security implications and concerns uh, that arise from increasing Chinese uh, technological footprint. Um, um, so, how how do you sort of view that argument, the national security argument, as it were? Yeah, I do make the point in the book that there are some legitimate national security questions, no doubt. And one of the criticisms that I have is that from 2014 onwards, I think the government was so open to Chinese investment without adequately looking at the with the security implications. So I think that what was really needed was a very credible, transparent uh, investment regime that doesn't single out Chinese companies. I think that would be self-defeating, but that applies to every Uh, country in the world. Frankly, as an Indian citizen, you would be concerned if a Chinese company has access to your data, but I think you should be concerned as well if any other uh, other country's company has access to your information. Uh, I don't think it should be a China-specific problem at all, even if China comes with unique problems as a country that has an unresolved boundary with India, as a country that has security issues with India. But I think as an Indian citizen, this should apply to all foreign companies uh, and, and the way they do business in India. Uh, and I think that I, my personal view is I think they missed a trick by belatedly taking out measures that single out Chinese companies. What I would have done is right from the get-go have a, a more sophisticated system of screening investment. Frankly, I think not every investment is a security risk. I think if they're investing in an in a online grocery company uh, uh, that's helping it expand its footprint in India, I don't think there's a, there's, a, there's a strong argument to be made that, uh, that, that it's a security risk. I think even if they're investing in a company like PTM, there could be legitimate security concerns because of the fact that until a few years ago, no one quite knew where the data was being stored. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there data being stored in servers outside of India? But this is where the government's role comes in. You can't expect the private sector to play this role. The government should have come in from the beginning and said that, listen, you, Chinese companies, any other companies can come and invest, but with certain steps that we would take, data should be stored on Indian servers. There should be adequate protections. And I think there's a balance to be made. And I think we've lurched from one extreme of no checks and balances to a complete other extreme where everything that every investment that comes from China is somehow bad. I think we need to find a, a more sophisticated middle ground. Anand, you make a very interesting point there. You're saying from 2014 to early 2020, um, India was inviting Chinese capital, Chinese um, companies with open arms. Um, You actually see, but then in 2020, things started sort of going wrong, even before uh, perhaps the the military standoff. Um, You know, if you actually look at the strategic partnership between India and and China, or rather the military standoff that we are looking at today, uh, Modi and Xi went uh, to great lengths um, to strengthen diplomatic ties, the Wuhan summit, the Chennai connect, that is and the other, invested personal capital. You do mention, you do write at uh, length in the book about how uh, Xi was received in um, uh, Sabarmadi and and, and Modi was received in Wuhan. Uh, so did did uh, Mr. Modi uh, misunderstand uh, Mr. Xi and China? Did India misunderstand China from 2014 to 2020? What's your verdict? 
I wouldn't say so. I think uh, honestly, I think uh, in hindsight, it's quite easy to say that we we got China wrong. Uh, but I think that uh, being in Beijing from that period onwards and covering uh, the the Doklam crisis in 2017, the first informal summit when I think uh, Prime Minister Modi did take a risk and go to Wuhan. Um, all the public opinion, the criticism from the opposition. I thought it was a great thing to do at the, at that point to go to Wuhan and try and repair the relationship. And I think that you can't criticize the government for trying to repair a relationship with your biggest neighbor and uh, a country with which you have a difficult political relationship. I think it behoves any Indian government to try and fix a relationship with China. Uh, and I think the whole process of uh, going to Wuhan and then she coming to Chennai, which also was quite unique. It's something that China, it's a kind of a, a arrangement that China didn't have with any other country. I think it's something that you really can't fault the Indian government for investing in. And I, I don't agree think- with that. Anand, Anand the, the, the trouble is this. Um, you did mention uh, in answer to my previous question that until 2014, th- there was a um, very careful approach to inviting Chinese companies and investment. In 2014, things opened up. Uh, is that an indication um, of the of the thinking in Delhi that hey, um, uh, India and China can go to great lengths? Was there was there a certain carelessness in the in the whole approach to um, China, Chinese investment, um, what Chinese um, PLA might do on the on the line of actual control, or is that an overstatement? No, I think that it's one of the other interesting things is that some that some of the positive things that happen on the trade and investment side post twenty fourteen largely happen without the active involvement of both governments. They were obviously happy to see it and then come in the way of the process. But it was something more that I think came organically with Indian companies, want Indian companies, the tech sector wanting capital and Chinese companies that were going on this outbound investment spree from 2013 to 2016. It's not that India was the only market. Uh, according to numbers that I saw, India ranked 30 uh, in mm-hmm. destinations of where Chinese money was going abroad. But as part of this phenomenon of Chinese capital going all over the world, investing in companies, a lot of it was coming to India as well. And I think that both governments were happy to see that happen, um, which I think is a background to how uh, this big investment relationship actually took off. Uh, but I do think, as you said, um, there could have been checks and balances. So we didn't lurch to this other extreme in 2020 by trying to ban outright all Chinese investment, which I think is counterproductive. Um, I think a common problem, Harimon, has been that policy and regulation generally lags behind developments in the relationship and takes a while to catch up. Uh, it's rarely the case where it's ahead of the curve. Uh, so I think that's what you're seeing, where I think they're kind of belatedly reacting uh, to these developments. I would look at the political side slightly differently, where, uh, as you know, I think India and China had since uh, the 90s tried to separate the boundaries from other aspects of the relationship. I think that's something that worked broadly well, even though now it's kind of of fashionable now to say that the 1988 model never worked. And I think it's fashionable to now criticize it. But I mean, looking back from 1988 to 2020, the fact that you manage this huge unresolved line of actual control has never been demarcated while trade relations went from nothing to $95 billion, while investment relations went from nothing uh, while you found some common areas for India and trying to work on uh, globally, I, don't, I, I think that I wouldn't be too critical on uh, generally how this uh, pattern of engagement worked. Obviously, in hindsight, it's easy to criticize saying that why didn't you resolve the outstanding boundary issue, which is now uh, rearing its head again. Um, so I would say that, honestly speaking, 
I did not see the crisis in 2020 coming, uh, covering uh, how things had transpired post Doklam. I think Doklam was a crisis that both kind of walked into with neither wanting it. Uh, yeah. I think it was part of what China was doing in, in a lot of uh, places along, along the boundary. Um, and I think that if you look at the timing of how the Doklam crisis happened, they were also possibly lucky in resolving it because you had this visit of Prime Minister Modi to China uh, in September for a, for a summit. I think they were lucky in resolving it. But I thought that post Doklam, it seemed that both uh, sides were kind of uh, in agreement from what we were hearing from officials in briefings, on record, off record, both sides. They were saying the same thing, which is post Donald Trump, a lot of uh, unpredictability. Both wanted to at least shore up this front as they were dealing with other issues. Uh, and that seemed to be a common ground. And I, I wouldn't uh, think that Xi Jinping going to Wuhan, spending three days, at that time he had never done that for any foreign leader. <laughs> I think that's a, that was a strong sign that China wanted to repair relations. Xi Jinping yeah. coming to Chennai, again, something that he hadn't done, going just to one country. Obviously, he added Nepal as a, as a last minute stop. There was something that he rarely did. Only for the U.S. had he gone to a, and do this kind of summit before. Only for the U.S. and only for India. So to me, it showed that both sides were investing in the relationship. And I think it was a process that, in hindsight, I find it difficult to blame them. I don't think it was this elaborate ruse, which, which I think in, we, we, we tend to think that the Chinese are, in some ways, more far-sighted than they actually are. We, that, that they planned an elaborate two-year ruse and then mm -hmm. did this stealth thing on the boundary. I don't think that's how diplomacy works. I think up until the end of 2019, both were invested in fixing the relationship. Something changed in early 2020. What it is, I cannot tell you with certainty, but I think post-pandemic, we have seen a different behavior from China on all its frontiers, uh, whether, there, whether there, there was an internal uh, sense of paranoia, internal sense of vulnerability, internal sense of anxiety post-COVID-19 uh, in the first quarter of the year. I don't know. We can only speculate. But I would disagree with most experts who think that uh, India was sort of lulled into this by this elaborate two-year ruse by China, and then they carried out these transgressions on the border. I think both sides were invested in fixing the relationship in 2018 and 2019, which was, which was my reading of the situation at the time. Well, I, I think some of, that, some of that misunderstanding comes from the um, fact that the Indians uh, think that uh, China is an equal to um, India, whereas the Chinese don't think that. I mean, you write in your book um, that the idea of India as a weak um, colonized power still persists within the Chinese strategic community. You also say that India sees China as its equal, whereas Chinese strategic thinkers not only resent that notion, but see the relationship with India in the context of China's great rivalry with the United States. So there is, I mean, from the, from the Chinese point of view, India is no match. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering, um, um, what is the sort of strong, um, solid notion within the Chinese um, strategic community about India as, as, a, um, as a weak uh, country that we can sort of deal with, uh, with some military force, what's your sense? Yeah, I think it's an interesting dilemma because it's, I think it's a dilemma that can never be resolved because uh, obviously as an Indian, why would you think of our country being uh, as an inferior power to any other country? It's, it's, it's not in your DNA and it's difficult for anyone right. to, to expect that. And uh, for a Chinese person also, uh, I think they would be genuinely puzzled why they should treat a country that they view as a five time, uh, they have a five times larger economy, they spend more on the military, and they're so obsessed with America and reaching parity with America. 
that they genuinely find it puzzling to be thought of, of, of India-China parity as a concept is something that obviously it goes against their uh, obsessive uh, sort of need to benchmark themselves with the US, right? So I think it's a, it's a contradiction that can never be resolved. Um, and I think the trick is for both sides to somehow find a way of, of living with each other and, and getting past that contradiction. Um, right. And I think that it's something that goes back a long way. The point that I make is I, uh, I think there is a, the, historically speaking, uh, there, there is a warmth towards India and China because of the Buddhist connection. I think it still perseveres, um, in part because of ignorance that people aren't, people aren't aware of the fact that India is no longer a, a Buddhist country. You'd be shocked at the questions that I've received. People still assume that, that uh, there's a huge patronage of Buddhism in India. People assume yeah. that in China. But that warmth has lingered. But I think that there is another strand. There is huge warmth at people to people level, but there is another strand. I think if you look at how Chinese elites look at India, uh, and I trace that back to at least 100 years to the start of the 20th century, when there was a new intellectual movement in China uh, after the fall of the Qing dynasty, um, mm. that was filled with a sense of anxiety about restoring China to what they thought was its uh, place in the world and trying to understand why China had declined. Um, and some of, the, some of that comes out when Rabindranath Tagore visited uh, China uh, in the early 1920s. And, and, and you got this tension between these two different strands. On the one hand, he was hugely welcomed as, a, as an Asian poet, the first to win the, the Nobel Prize. Uh, he was welcomed by, by Chinese literary figures and taken around. He gave lectures attended by thousands of people in China. They saw him as this, you know, this as, as a sage-like figure. But on the other hand, some of the most prominent Chinese intellectuals and nationalists of the day were vehemently opposing his visit because uh, they felt that um, they, they, the last thing that China wanted in their, in their eyes was to be Indianized. And they looked right. at India as a country that was colonized. China was another country that was colonized. Mm -hmm. um, so they felt that India offered all the wrong lessons. And I, and I think there's some amount of that that I don't want to oversimplify, mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's some amount of that that lingers that initially India was this British colonial power. Now they like to situate India as being this, as a, as a puppet of the Americans, which I think obviously is a very simplistic notion, but yeah. I think one that's gaining currency, but they don't look at India as a power on its own right to be engaged with. And that's why I think it kind of now falls into uh, their larger sort of vision with, with, with their larger problems with the US as well, which, uh, and I think that the external affairs minister sort of uh, alluded to in one of his speeches recently, where he said that we engage with China bilaterally and they engage with us uh, 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 keeping a third country in mind. I wasn't sure if he was referring to Pakistan or the US, uh, but I think both apply. Uh, right. And uh, I think there's a sense of not dealing with India on its own terms and on its own merits. Uh, and I think that's another problem as well that, that, that needs to be resolved. Um, it's very possible that the downturn in China-US relations is, could have been something else that's, that's prompted China acting out on all of its frontiers, whether it's with Taiwan, whether India, South China Sea. Uh, I think historically speaking, problems on the boundary and on the bilateral side have always been influenced by external uh, events. Um, and, and so, I mean, we, we're still speculating, but I think it could be a combination of all of that that led to this crisis in 2020. Right. Uh, you know, you, you write very interestingly um, in the book. Uh, in fact, you make a case for the, for, for the settlement of the boundary dispute between India and, and China. 
Uh, I mean, this is despite the recent clashes in the Galwan Wadi between the between the two sides. In fact, the ongoing, uh, uh, you know, sort of standoff as it were um, in Arunachal Pradesh and, and other places. What really is your argument? Can you take us through the argument as to how do we go about resolving the boundary dispute? Um, um, you know, in in the wake of all these uh, all, all these challenges by the Chinese. So I finished uh, writing this book and submitted the draft on August first, twenty twenty. So I had some time to reflect on the clash in Galwan Valley that happened on June fifteenth, and uh, I was asking myself if I should revisit some of the conclusions that I had uh, on the chapters that I have on the boundary dispute, but. thinking about it and speaking to former indian officials as well and former ambassadors to china who i interviewed in the book for me uh, to me it only reinforced uh, my argument in the book that uh, leaving this boundary unsettled is going to be increasingly a huge problem in the relationship and the model of separating issues no longer works for various reasons uh, your investment is a great example where when you no longer have a distant transaction relationship you're having a more close relationship you're going to be thinking about security considerations and having a country with an unresolved boundary is going to cast a shadow on everything else um i think for me the clash just underscored that the point that i make is both countries are feeding this illusion to their citizens that they're going to recover territory back as if it's it's going to happen overnight yeah. um i think that the reality is that neither country is going to recover territory back uh unless it's through war and conquest no country is going to voluntarily part with territory the obvious solution that stares both countries in the face is settling along the line of actual control yeah and i think that uh obviously there are pockets along the lac where uh both sides have differing views it's it's quite interesting the current crisis people forget it's not about the core territorial claims it's not about uh india's claims of 38000 square kilometers in aksai chin it's not about china's claims of 90000 square kilometers or what have you in arunachal pradesh it's about claims of a few square kilometers of alignment of the line of actual control it's unrelated in some ways to the core territorial issues not that i'm playing down the importance of 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 clarifying the line of actual control but it's quite interesting to me that the entire dispute is now focused on something that's secondary to the crux of the dispute which is this huge amount of territory that both sides are claiming to me it's clear that the only solution is going to be uh making this uh de facto boundary the final boundary uh, i don't think if both sides have the political will i don't think it's so difficult for them to settle the line of actual control it's not uh, the, the the huge amounts of territory both know are never going to be parted with uh it's going to be give or take of, of minor adjustments along the current line and i think that that's something that both sides should work for for the long term interests of both countries although uh, i you do mention this in the book the pakistan angle um, sort of complicates this a little more because of the pok uh, right. part of it um, can you briefly uh, tell us what that argument is yeah i think that uh, it's interesting that the chinese say the biggest uh, obstacle to a settlement is india as a democracy will find it difficult to politically sell a settlement but i disagree in the book i think that uh, i don't think that's the case as a settlement a settlement with bangladesh is obviously different but i think it showed that it's possible i, I think i would say there are two biggest obstacles from my view the first i think is this is this desire in china to to view an unsettled boundary as leverage as something that can keep india off guard Uh, that's why they are reluctant to ever spell out their line of actual control claims that's why they have never clarified the lac even though india keeps saying we should clarify the lac that ship has sailed china yeah. is never going to clarify the lac because they want ambiguity 
to keep India off balance. And I think that's the biggest issue is they, they look at this as leverage. And their view is basically, in a nutshell, they feel that by settling the boundary, they're giving away something for nothing. Uh, because they can't hold India to, for example, what concerns them the most is close India-US relations. But India could settle the boundary and then do what it wants with the US. So they feel they're giving away something for nothing. But I think that it's a, it's a, I, um, I think there's a contradiction in the Chinese thinking. They say that the boundary uh, is the result of better relations. It's, it's not the means to better relations, which is what I would think. But then they are in a contradiction because one of the biggest reasons for poor relations is the unsettled boundary. So China viewing the boundary as an outcome of better relations, I think, is a proposition that's never going to be fulfilled. And a related one to that, Happy Mom, is what you said. I think the fact that I have a chapter on the book on the China-Pakistan connection, and it's back in a huge way in the last few years, especially post-China-Pakistan economic corridor. I think it's a huge negative for the relationship that China is deferring to Pakistan on many issues when it comes to India. I think the fact that they went ahead with the CPEC, uh, despite India's sensitivities, was a huge decision by Beijing. Uh, they were aware of the consequences. I think Beijing was aware of the fact that they were essentially keeping India out of the Belt and Road Initiative by going through with CPEC. That was something that India had conveyed to them, yet they decided to make the CPEC a flagship corridor of the Belt and Road. I think Indian commentators, commentators sometimes have missed the point by saying that, you know, India is staying out of the BRI. But, but the flip side of that happy moment was that China was aware that it could have reframed the CPEC. It could have been something that, uh, it could have been something that went from Gwadar port to, uh, to, to the edge of, of the POK boundary. It didn't have to go all the way to, to yeah. China, to Xinjiang. Yeah. There were numerable ways in which they could have kept India yeah. on board with the BRI like they managed to do with the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, but they chose to defer to how Pakistan wanted the CBEC. Uh, to me, it was, a, it was a reflection of the fact that they're increasingly batting for Pakistan, uh, even when it comes to issues that are core issues yeah. with, yeah, like terrorism. And that's, yeah. a huge, that's going to be a huge problem for the relationship going forward. Right, Anand, just to go back a couple of more questions, just to go back to the um, vision that uh, Xi Jinping uh, has for China. I mean, he often talks about um, China uh, moving to the center of the world, as it were. So what would a world uh, with Chinese characteristics uh, uh, look like? Uh, I'm overstating my point, but you know. No, I think uh, to put it simply, it's I think that... Uh, if you look at the fact that his, his uh, big campaign that he settled on as soon as he took over uh, was the China dream, which is a rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And there are two components that I think at home, it means uh, prosperity for people within China. And, but I think equally important is the global connotations of the China dream, which is uh, China that in their view occupies uh, its rightful place in the world. Obviously, they openly say that challenging the U.S. is their long-term uh, ambition. Mm. And they talk about having a world-class military by 2049, when the when a People's Republic turns 100. The, the 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 connotation is a military on par with the U.S. I think what uh, I think to put it very briefly, I think I think you're already seeing it in the way China uh, is asserting itself, where I think it sees itself as the dominant power in the region. Um, I think that increasingly it brooks no interference. It doesn't want external actors interfering in its immediate neighborhood. I think you're seeing that in the way they've, uh, they've reacted so strongly, mm -hmm. whether it's to, to what countries have been saying uh, about Hong Kong or even in the South China Sea. 
Uh, I think that to put it in a nutshell, it would involve uh, Chinese primacy in the region uh, and uh, dealing with countries on their own terms. Uh, and I think we're seeing that as well, uh, the way they're approaching disputes as well. And obviously the longer term, uh, the longer term goal, Happy Mon, is, uh, as I just said, uh, making China uh, probably on par with the US by 2049 is a long-term goal. And I think that uh, that's something that the Communist Party has sort of etched in, in, in every sort of uh, internal document, in, in every proclamation that they have, uh, which, which they call the two centennial goals. Uh, the first being uh, 2021, this year, which is such an important year for China because the Communist Party turns 100. Uh, and this is a year when they uh, will plan to eliminate absolute poverty. Uh, mm. and build what they call a moderately mm. prosperous society. And that's the first big goal. Uh, the second big goal is 2049, uh, which, which has all these global connotations. Uh, and I think that's what they're, they're aspiring towards. Right, and here is my final question. And, and this is about your life as a journalist in, in, in communist China. Um, you do write about, um, you know, the, the surveillance that the Chinese had on you uh, while you were visiting uh, Tibet. Um, so, what has been your experience as a journalist covering China for, for 10 years? I mean, especially your visits to, uh, you know, conflict-ridden areas like Xinjiang um, and recently in Hong Kong during the, uh, the pro-democracy protests there and also to Tibet. If you could sort of tell us what was it like being an Indian journalist in China? No, I think I really, uh, I think three of the chapters I really enjoyed writing was uh, the part that I have on Frontiers. I have a chapter each on Tibet, on Xinjiang and Hong Kong. And um, I think I was so lucky, Happy Mon, being there from this period uh, of 10 years uh, leading up to 2018, because as I said, it was so much easier to travel back then. And I think I was in China at a time when, to be very honest with you, people would be surprised to hear this, but I didn't really care about what I was writing because I was writing in English um, and, and I was writing for Indian media. Uh, no disrespect to my two employers, the Hindu in India today, but people <laughs> in Beijing really were not uh, staying up at night, uh, worried too much about coverage in India. The right. way that they would, uh, they would, the way that they would react to what the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal were doing, because they that would really that really mattered them because they knew that that was being read all over the world. But uh, but in a way, I think that low profile helped me where. Um, it was a vastly different experience to what Chinese journalists have. They're so worried about what's published in Mandarin because people in China read it. And it's, and it's something that directly affects the, the regime. It's something that directly affects how the Communist Party is perceived by people in China. So the space that Chinese journalists have to work is so tight, is so limited and so difficult. But as a foreign journalist back then, you kind of got away with it, but that's changing. I think mm -hmm. more and more, I think uh, with China's stature growing, I think they're more and more trying to shape coverage all over the world. Uh, I think things that didn't bother them 10 years ago would bother them today. Uh, and I think that's why you see them push back. You see the Chinese embassy even in India often uh, put out uh, notices where they are kind of upset with how the Indian media is covering Taiwan or uh, how the Indian media is covering Tibet, which is something they didn't do 10 years ago. I think that threshold has really changed. Uh, and I was, I think in China at a time when, to be honest with you, I rarely got uh, even stories that I did on Tibet. Uh, they were not that bothered by it because of the fact that people in China weren't reading it. But I think something that's really changed in Xi, Xi Jinping's China is that threshold, their expectations changed so much where they feel that anybody writing anything negative about China anywhere in the world is something that they have a right to object to or comment upon. I think this is something new. And we've only seen that in the last year or two. 
uh, and um, and so I, I would be interested to see uh, going back to China whether the changes. But day to day, you'd be surprised where I had the space to travel besides Xinjiang and Tibet. I had the space to travel where I wanted. I traveled in the story. I speak to so many people um, uh, who had, for instance, suffered uh, from land rights issues. I traveled to small villages where there were land conflicts happening. Uh, I would. Uh, it's quite surprising where I mentioned in the book where my experience was so varied. I would. I, I could travel to a small village where the the local party leadership would be welcoming and it'd be like, oh, we are honored to have a foreign reporter, and they would explain things to me about their issues. But I would also have a situation where, unbeknownst to me, it's possible that that local village was perhaps part of some broader conflict that was happening. So the local party leadership would at all costs want me to get out of that village. So it all depended on local context. And the thing that struck me was the writ of Beijing didn't matter. I could have my foreign ministry press card issued by Beijing, but at, at where when I was on the ground, it was the writ of the local village chief that mattered. As far as I was concerned, my fate was in his hands. So yeah, so there was a sense of decentralization as well, which we don't, ex we think that the writ of Beijing runs deep, which it does. But my own experience, uh, and I think perhaps it's changed a little bit under Xi Jinping, but my own experience was I often found that when I was away from Beijing, it, it, it seemed really, really far away. Uh, and I had a range of experiences sometimes that I had to, you know, it was funny that I think uh, you had local leaders who are unfamiliar talking to foreign media. And sometimes I would be careful to not write things that would get them fired because sometimes it would be so honest to me saying that, you know, oh, the central government doesn't care about us because they wouldn't realize the import of their words. And I knew that by publishing that, I would be ending this man's career. Uh -huh. so, so, so I was, so I had a contrast, contrasting range of experiences. One thing, Happy Mon, on the, I, I should end this by saying on the people to people level, nothing but warmth and kindness, wherever I went, even in Xinjiang, where Tibet, wherever villages in China, people would welcome me into their homes. They, they had only good things to say about India. Uh, they would uh, be happy. They would be honored to have me at home and uh, cook me a meal if I was out reporting somewhere. So something that I really take away, we focus so much on the politics, but something that I think I really take away is, is the day-to-day -day warmth that I felt is, is something that I really treasure. Fascinating insights and equally fascinating book. Anand Krishnan, thank you so much for joining the show. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.